Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Compass Church. You know, as I was greeting folks, I met a number of new people. Every week we have visitors, and I just want you to know if you are a visitor, we are really glad that you're here. Maybe you're a little nervous, you know, you're like, oh, this is a big church, these are weird people. Yes, we are weird, but we love you, and God does too, and we pray you're blessed. You know, we're just a a group of people who are growing in our uh, passion to know this God who made us and made the universe believing that relationship with the maker is the point of existence. And so join us in that, that pursuit. You know, I was, my sermon was criticized last week, as usual. And one of the criticisms was that I had no props. They said, Jeff, you had nothing visual for us. Boring. And so I have bought a box full of trinkets and props. It's going to be like show and tell today. All right? We're going back to kindergarten. Let me start with the TV remotes from our house. This little device nearly caused a civil war in the Griffin family on Monday night. It was bad. Monday night, I was so excited. I sat down on the couch with a firm grip on this device, and I turned on the only show any God-fearing person would be watching at that point, NFL Monday Night Football Chicago Bears on national TV. I was so excited. And then I I live with three women, my my wife, two daughters, and they came up to me, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what are we doing? Sit down. It's time to watch the Bears game. This is going to be awesome. And my eldest daughter says, tonight is Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) So? <laughs> and, and Jorah's like, you know, Dad, Sadie Robertson from Duck Dynasty is competing, and she's outspoken about her Christian faith as if I had some spiritual obligation to watch this show, you know. And we had a problem because I wasn't letting go. <laughs> and then my 15-year-old daughter starts problem-solving. I'm not kidding you. She said this. She goes, Dad, couldn't you, like, go to a bar or something and watch the game? (laughs) Yeah, send the pastor to the bar. That's a good idea. I didn't know what we were going to do. And we have one TV in the house. Uh, Jora, thankfully, came up with a better solution. She said, I may be able to connect my laptop to the Internet and watch Dancing with the Stars via that device. And I started praying. And thankfully, we were able to solve the problem in that way. But I I need to tell you that in every family, there's somebody who gets to hold this thing. And in the Griffin family, that'd be me. Uh, And rightly so. I am really good at it. You know, I I steward our time well when there are commercial breaks. It provides a chance to zoom through and see some other entertaining stuff. And then I I have this sense of when the game's about to restart, and I get back just in time. You probably, others would not do as well. I am really good at that. And so because of my giftedness, I'm the one that should have this device. I, I control the volume. I'm a little hard of hearing, and so I can crank the volume at a level that's uncomfortable for others, but works well for me. And so 
I love it. If, if, if someone else were to have this device and I were to be watching TV and they were doing the flipping, it would drive me crazy. I would be like, ah, ah. And so what does that say about me? I am a control freak, all right? And you may be too. In fact, I would argue that every single one of us has a little bit of a control freak in us. We like to call the shots. And as a result of that part of us, this message is going to be a hard one. I'll just warn you. If you're hoping for a real warm and fuzzy feel-good message, you came on the wrong week because we're here to study that Jesus Christ wants us to turn over the control to him. He wants to be the Lord, the leader, the king of our lives. And for a people who like to call the shots, surrendering, submitting to the Lordship of Christ is not easy. You know, this series entitled The Stranger is a study of the identity of Jesus Christ. When he first arrived at the town of Capernaum, the, the, what you see here are the remains, the reconstructed remains of the old synagogue in Capernaum, this little town on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was largely a stranger. But through the three years that he lived there and ministered, out of that town, he revealed who he was and what he was like through the encounters that he had with the people of that town. You know, in the first week, we looked at the fishermen, Peter in specific. Peter encountered Jesus in a dramatic way that revealed the true holiness of Christ as God in human flesh and revealed his grace towards sinful people. Well, then last week we looked at the outcast. Remember the outcast, that woman with the perpetual bleeding condition who had been ostracized and sent to the perimeters of society? Jesus demonstrated in his encounter with her a love of another kind, a compassion that burns in him that's not of this world. And that passion, we discovered, burns for that outcast and for each of us as well. And this week, the person who encounters Jesus is the officer. The officer is a military officer who had been stationed in Capernaum. He, he's a Roman, you know, so his, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And the Roman Empire was dominating the whole land in those days. And so they had stationed various military officers to maintain the peace. And this guy had been stationed there. And he had been watching the Jewish people. No, that, though not part of the Jewish people, he watched them. And he was really growing to love them as a people and more specifically growing to love their God. And this Jesus who had come to the town he was stationed at had caught his attention. And he was falling increasingly uh, taken by this one called Jesus. You ready to read? I'm uh, reading out of Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. You can see the compassion in this man. He loves his servant. 
and his servant had apparently been in an accident of some sort that left him paralyzed. And this officer believes that Jesus is the solution to his servant's great need. And it's really interesting. We learn a little bit more about this officer through the uh, account in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Matthew for the majority, all but this verse, actually. But do allow me to flip to Luke 7, verse 4, to just know a little more about the officer. It says in that account that they, the people of the town, earnestly begged Jesus to help this guy. If anyone deserves your help, the centurion does, they said. For this officer, he loves the Jewish people, and he even built a synagogue for us. You see, a Roman officer would be very wealthy compared to the poor fishermen of that village. And with the money that he had, out of great generosity, he said, you know what I'm going to do for you people? I'm going to build you a worship center, a synagogue. And so, as we go to this photograph here, we can see. Now, I, I want to make sure that I don't mislead you here. The, the white stone, the marble that you see that we saw in the logo of the series, this synagogue actually dates back to the third century, 300 AD. So not the time of Christ. But when archaeologists excavated beneath the surface, they discovered black or basalt stone that date back to the first century. And so what they realized happened is at some point, the first century synagogue was torn down, but the new one was built on top of the foundation of the first century one. So that tells us a few things. Number one is that when we read in Mark 1 that Jesus taught with authority in the synagogue, this is the exact spot where Jesus taught. It also tells us that these black stones that you see here, They were paid for, they were cut, they were laid through the generosity of the very man that we're studying in this text. The officer bought those stones, all right? And he, out of great love, uh, he had had blessed the people of Capernaum with their synagogue. Let me read verse 7, back in Matthew 8. Jesus said to him, I will come and I will heal him. Check this out. But the officer replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. You just say the word from where you are, and I know that my servant will be healed. Wow. Just say the word right here. Even though my house is on the other side of town, I believe you just say the word and he'll be healed. Look at how he, the officer explains. He says in verse Nine, I know this because I am under authority, the authority of my superior officers. And he said, I also have authority over my soldiers. I just need to say, go, and they go. I I just say, come, and immediately they come. Do you see what the, the officer is saying? He's saying, Jesus, people, the reason I am so confident that all Jesus needs to do is say the word is that I understand authority. You know, the the whole notion of authority. There are certain people that are in authority, have authority, and we must submit to them. And there may be people that we have authority over, and they must submit to us. A guy in the military, a military officer, is in an environment that is centered on authority. Think about it. An army would be 
completely chaotic and unproductive if authority was not embraced. Imagine a superior officer saying, Sergeant, at my command, I want you to take your men and attack the right flank of the enemy. And the sergeant would say, well, um, no, I don't think I want to. You know, that would be purely disastrous. The army understands that when an order is given, it is not up for discussion. It is ready to be obeyed. And that notion of authority is essential. And, and, and this guy, this officer, he says, I really understand authority. And he, he's also saying that upon getting to know this Jesus, he has concluded that Jesus, among other things, is a man of authority. He says, Jesus, your authority is remarkable. In fact, he says, your authority is not like mine. My authority is over the military. He says, I believe your authority is over the spiritual realm. I believe you just need to speak to the disease and it will flee from my servant. Holy cow. He says, you are an authority of a supreme order. Do all the people of Capernaum realize this about Jesus? I don't think so. I think they knew that he was kind and wise and loving and that he was many things, but only this officer realized we are in the presence of an authority of the heavenly realm. That's huge. In fact, going back to my prop box, what this guy is signifying is his recognition that Jesus is the king. In fact, the Bible describes Jesus as the king of kings. When you want to get to know this Christ, he comes wearing a crown. He has come to rule the universe and more specifically to rule your life and mine. How do you feel about that? You know, for us control freaks, that's a little unnerving. And even some Christians will say, Jesus, I want you. I I want the forgiveness that comes through what you did on the cross. I want your love. You know what Jeff talked about last week? That's great. Love on me. I want your wisdom to speak into my life. You know, offer your suggestions, and I will consider doing them. But if you don't mind take off the crown because that makes me uncomfortable. You can't say that to Jesus. He's a package deal. He comes who he is and he is the king of kings. And so if you want him, you must want his kingship as well. And this is really hard. You know, in every relationship, we're forced to ask the question, to what extent does this person bring authority into my life? Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, uh, students, when you're in class, you, you have to recognize that this teacher has authority. Now, there's parameters. The teacher only has authority in the classroom. When I go home, the teacher can't determine what TV show I watch. That's outside of their authority. But in the classroom, they're there. My parents have authority, but that's for a time. You know, when you're 35 years old, your mom shouldn't be calling you up saying, are you in bed yet? You know, that's beyond that. 
And so every relationship, there's authority. Police officers can speak into various things, like particularly how fast we drive, and if we stop at stoplights, they've got authority in our lives in those realms. You know, uh, one of them would be doctors. Let me, let me ask you about this. This is a touchy one. I, I took my uh, daughter, Janae, 10-year-old, to the doctor. She was having an asthmatic attack spurred on by a cold. And I, I'm an asthmatic as well, so she and I relate in that. And we were at the doctor, and he gave a prescription for some medication. He said, this will help tremendously. And he said, I'd like to have a follow-up appointment in a week. I personally think follow-up appointments are a racket. I, I, I mean, they just make no sense to me. I'm like, oh, so when we come in, we're sick. That makes sense. But when we're better, you want us to come and pay you more money just to officially say we're better. As, if you're a doctor, I apologize for offending you, but I just got to say it like it is. That's how I feel. And I pushed back on this doctor, and I said, Doc, so in a week, her asthma is totally gone. She's feeling great. Is it really necessary for us to come in again? And he was emphatic. Yes, I need to check her breathing and make sure we must set up a follow-up appointment. All right, whatever. And so we, said, we did a follow-up appointment, and a week later, uh, we came back. And he listened to her breathing and announced what I knew he was going to say, and that is, she's all better. And then he said, that medicine really works well. I said, yeah, about that medicine. We need to talk. I said, you won't believe what happened. We got in the car. We left the doctor's office last week. We went to Walgreens. And by the time we got there, she was breathing better. So I chose not to get the medicine. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me like I should go to jail. That's how the doctor looked at me. And he goes, you never fulfilled the prescription and gave her the medicine. I go, Doc, I listened to her breathing. Again, I'm an asthmatic, so I know what it's like. She was really doing better. I don't know if it's air conditioning or what, but no, I didn't do it. And he's red in the face. You know, I see the, the, the veins in his neck, and he pulls up a chair, and he says, Mr. Griffin, we need to talk. And I'm like, okay. And he says, you are what the medical society calls a nonconformant. And he says, in order for us to have a viable doctor-patient relationship, you must do what I say. And he pulls out a contract. No kidding. It was a written pledge. And he said, if we are going to continue to serve your family, I'm going to need you to sign this covenant pledging to do what I say. Wow! You know, the, uh, I don't respond well in moments like this. And I'm like, well, if I go home and tell my wife we lost our doctor, that's not going to go over well. And so I signed it. I, I regret I did because as I thought about it later, I said, you know, again, there are certain relationships that submission to authority is essential. I don't believe the doctor-patient relationship is one of them. You may and I respect you. I disagree with you, but I respect you. For me, I believe that the doctor is one who provides their perspective on the situation and advises treatment, but I believe we retain the authority to actually decide whether we're going to do that or our family members are going to do that. And you say, no! We don't have to agree on the doctor-patient relationship. 
But I hope we agree on the God-child-of-God relationship. That one, I believe, it is essential that we submit to his authority and sign the contract. How do you feel about that? Do you believe that the nature of a relationship with God is that he is the supreme authority in all realms of life? He speaks, we must obey. That's what the officer in Capernaum knew to be true about this Jesus Christ. And maybe you know that to be true as well. You know, I have a a dear friend named Joe. And I remember when my wife and I were out on a double date with Joe and his wife at an Italian restaurant. And it was my prayer, my hope, that he was going to pray to receive Christ and become a Christian that evening at dinner. He and I had been talking about the Lord and the gospel message of the life available to him through Christ. And he was so interested in getting so close. And as we got to the dessert portion of this meal, I just put it out there. I say, Joe, what do you say? You want to pray right here, the four of us together? You want to call out to Christ and cross that line of faith and become a true Christian? And he says, Jeff, yes and no. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I want it, but I can't. I I want the forgiveness that's available. He said, I know that this Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. He goes, you don't know how bad I want Jesus to be the forgiver of my sins. He said, the problem is I'm really struggling with, and this is the term he used, turning over the steering wheel of my life to Jesus. Uh, Just so happened to have a steering wheel here, so uh, we pulled it out of your car just for a time. We'll put it back. I hope you're okay. And Joe said, I like being behind the wheel. I like being in control of my life. And he said, if I've understood what you've been teaching me, Jeff, to become a Christian means that you invite Jesus to be in charge of your life. And he said, I just am not ready to turn over control yet. And I was like, doggone it. Uh, He's like, that is necessary, right? Yeah, 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 I think it is. I softened it in this way. I said, Joe, none of us do that perfectly. We all, as Christians, desire to follow Jesus as Lord, and we make mistakes, we fail, we sin, and he forgives us, and we get back up, and we say, I'm ready to follow you again. And so I said, you don't have to do it perfectly. And he said, yeah, but you do have to, like, plan on obeying him, right? It has to be the intention of your heart to recognize his leadership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I'm not ready to do that. I'm like, doggone. You know, as we went home that night, one side of me was so disappointed that he didn't have the guts to give Jesus the wheel. And yet the other side of me was so encouraged. And I said this to Jen. I said, when he does, that man will mean business. He understands who Christ is, both Savior and Lord. And sure enough, Joe, a number of weeks after that, gave his life to Jesus with abandon. In studying this Christ, he had come to a place where he trusted him enough to not only ask for his sins to be forgiven, 
but to entrust his life to his lordship as well. How do you feel about turning over the wheel of your life to Jesus? Some of you are like, oh, I feel great about that. Lordship, I got it. I'm not uncomfortable with lordship at all. Liar. The truth is all of us struggle with lordship. In theory, we may be real enthusiastic about it and say, I want Jesus to be the leader of my life. In fact, in the big decisions of your life, it may really reflect that well. You know, you may say, I I let Jesus pick who I married, who I believe the Lord wanted me to marry. I am faithful to my wife or husband because the Lord calls me to be faithful. I picked a career path that I think the Lord wants me to pick. I came to the Compass Church because God told me to leave my old job and to come here. I tithe, you may say, because the Lord wants me to give a tenth to his church. You're proud of your submission in the big areas, but all of us are sinners. And every single sin is an act of defiance to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Even little sins are us taking the wheel back and saying, I got this, I don't need you. You know, little, little things like going to that website that you know the Lord does not want you to return to. And there you do. In that moment, when you go to the website, you know what the Lord's wanting, and you're going, la, 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 I'm not listening. Defiance. Or uh, taking that third glass of wine. Defiance. Or getting that large Oreo milkshake when you know God doesn't want you to do it. Defiance. Or that white lie at work. Or losing your temper with your kids. Or looking at the socks next to your bed, knowing that your wife has asked you a thousand times to put them in the hamper. But you just say, ah, the Lord wants me to honor her by doing it, but forget it. Defiance. Throughout our day, there are little decisions we make where deep down we know Jesus is asking us to do something and we choose a different path. Folks, lordship is tough for all of us. To recognize the authority of Jesus and say what that centurion, the officer, said, you just say the word. No debate, no pushback, I will recognize your authority. That is really hard. And to encourage us to embrace that plan, that lifestyle of submission and everything to the leadership of Christ, I want to provide three, I'm sorry, two, two benefits of lordship. Let's take a look at the first. The first benefit of lordship is that lordship will simplify your life. And at first that may be counterintuitive. You may say, really? I think it's simple if I just do what I want. Doing what he wants doesn't simplify. It does. You know, in our lives, we have expectations of everybody on us. Everybody wants a piece of us saying, you must do this, that, and the other. And sometimes it can be confusing and disorienting. And yet those who say, you know what? There's one voice that matters. All that matters to me is, Lord, what do you want? End of discussion, end of searching, you let your will be known, it's what I do. Can I give you an example of 
that just in a simple example that happened a couple days ago for me, uh, on Friday morning, I got a text from my wife, uh, reading the text right now, it's a little personal, so it says, uh, uh, 10.42 a.m., when is my hot picture-hanging husband coming home? (laughs) How about that? 30 years of being together, and she still thinks I'm hot. Don't tell her otherwise, okay? You say, what's that about? Picture-hanging husband. Well, that morning, Jen and I had a discussion. She reminded me that we were having a big party Friday night with a whole bunch of friends coming over, and our house is still not fully moved into the blank walls being evidence of that. And she said, is there any way you could come home for like an hour at your lunch break and just help me by putting up some pictures? And I said, uh, I'll try. And it, quite honestly, I had forgotten about it. And this text comes reminding me of that expectation of hers. At the very moment this text came, I had been thinking about Chick-fil-A. Uh, up, up where I came from, we did not have Chick-fil-A. And that is some good stuff. And so I was thinking, you know what I'd love to do? I've been working hard, a little break, getting out of the office, a little me time running over, splurging a bit at Chick-fil-A all by myself, reading something that I enjoy, maybe a sports of some sort. It sounded really good. And I had been weighing that against, or I could stay in the office and just get a snack and kind of have a working lunch. I was behind on my sermon prep, and that seemed to be maybe a wise path to take. And then all of a sudden my wife, and so I'm in a dilemma, maybe one that's not altogether strange to you. I have work, I have what I selfishly want, I have family, and I got to make a choice. And you know what I did? I said, you know what, what Jen wants really doesn't matter, or what I want doesn't really matter, or what the church wants really doesn't matter, it's what God wants. So I paused, didn't take long, just briefly paused in prayer and said, God, you just let me know what you want me to do right now, and I'll do what you want. And as I thought about it, I turned to the sermon and I felt like God was just saying, Jeff, you're going to be okay. You're a little obsessive in your need to have everything buttoned up. I will help you with your sermon. And as I turned to Chick-fil-A, the Lord said, Jeff, you don't need Chick-fil-A. You want Chick-fil-A. And sometimes it's all right to just treat yourself. But God, in that moment, said, I'd really love you to die to yourself in this moment, and you have not been treasuring your wife particularly well this week, and this is a chance for you to do that. And his will became evident, and I said, discussion over. Let's go hang some pictures. And as I hung the pictures, was I fretting about my sermon? No. I was doing what the Lord wanted me to do, and I knew that I was doing my best to follow him, and he would take care of the rest. I didn't have to worry. And I felt his smile. Felt my wife's smile. And felt God's smile as God said, Jeff, you're worshiping me through your obedience to my lordship in this moment. Each day gets a lot simpler when we just say, Lord, in every moment, in every encounter, my simple goal is to honor you and do what you want and trust you'll take care of the rest. And life becomes a lot simpler through lordship. One more. 
Lordship will also not only simplify your life, it will beautify your life. It will make your life more glorious if you're following the Lord. And you may have some pushback in that, you know, going back to the steering wheel. You may say, I'm really good at driving my life. And I really don't know if I turn it over to him how much better it's going to be. I think the steering wheel, the analogy breaks down at that point. Because I don't know if you've heard stats about this. If they interview people, like 98% of people will say they're better than most at driving. You know, we all view ourselves as good drivers when... uh, The truth is we can't all be better than most. So maybe rather than a steering wheel, this prop is more meaningful. Do you know what this is? It doesn't look very impressive, but it's very significant. This is what's called the yoke, or the steering wheel, of a Cessna four-seater airplane, the Skyhawk. And I have a friend uh, who owns a Skyhawk who took me up in the plane once. And it's interesting, there's one of these in front of both seats on that airplane, and I was sitting over in the passenger seat in front of one, and at a certain point, I couldn't stand it anymore. I said, can I drive? And he said, sure, go ahead. And so I took the yoke, and I'm like, "Woo! I'm flying an airplane, it's so much fun, you know, and we're going. And at a certain point, he interrupted me, and he says, Jeff, does it seem like we're descending to you? No, no. And he said, look at this little gauge. He said, if you continue that trajectory, we will crash and burn. (laughs) And he said, do you mind if I take back control? (laughs) Yeah, maybe you should. And so he took over, and he gave me the most beautiful journey. Took me over my neighborhood, pointed out my house. I got to see my house. Took me out to Lake Michigan, we flew along the lakeshore, went right past, got to see the beauty of the skyline of Chicago, came around and went back, and a journey so beautiful that if I were in charge, we would have never seen it. And then it came to the landing, where he did great, but if I were in charge at that point, we would have died. And here's where that analogy is more helpful. You know, when we have a firm grasp on the yoke of our airplane, we're tempted to say, I know what I'm doing, God. I can make this beautiful. And the Lord says, no, you don't. You're going to miss out on a beautiful journey if you insist on being in the one in control. And the certain challenges are going to come your way, and you're going to crash and burn if you're in control where the Lord says, I have infinite wisdom. I made you. I made life. I know best. And God says, I can turn your life into a journey of significance where you are used to impact eternity and the lives of people forever, ways that you never even could think of. God says, I will take you on a journey that will satisfy your soul in ways you never knew your soul could be satisfied. And the truth is, we're fools to think we can take a better journey on our own than giving it to the King of Kings. He knows what's best. And those who have the guts to surrender to the leadership of Jesus, life gets a lot more simple. And life gets a lot more beautiful along the way. 
So can I make a challenge? As we close in prayer, here, here would be my, my, my challenge. Sign the contract. You know, like the doctor put that contract in front of me that said, would you pledge to submit to my leadership? Don't sign the doctor's contract. Sign Jesus' contract. And as we close in prayer and then a song, you have an opportunity in your heart to look to Jesus. Remember what the verse said? Let me go back to this verse. I would challenge you in your heart to pledge these words. Just say the word. I want to be that kind of a Christian, a just say the word Christian. I want to mean it. We're in big decisions and small ones. You just say the word. No pushback. No debate. I'll obey. I trust you. Do you have the guts to make that pledge in the next few moments? Jesus is listening. And that's the right choice. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, only you know how many countless times we have failed to obey you. And we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace that covers all of our sin, big and little. And now, Lord, we're pledging. We're desiring to give our lives to you, to surrender everything to your Lordship. Would you please take us? Would you please lead us? We're going to say it, Lord. Just say the word. Let your will be done or known, and we will obey. Just say the word, and we will follow. We pray this in Jesus' name.